All right, so Friday, um, I was able to go to a film uh, that was showing uh, this, this, this past weekend, and one showing um, uh, by an organization called Both Ends Burning. And this is an adoption and orphan advocate organization. And the whole concept of Both Ends Burning is addressing the, the, the idea that there are parents, uh, families... Uh, in the system, trying to adopt, struggling to adopt, going through the motions that could be years and years, uh, going through all of the uh, uh, procedures and processes on this end. There's there's all this stuff going on here many times, and and unless you've adopted, it's hard to grasp the understanding of that, that season and that anguish at times and just that desire to uh, to do what you believe God may be calling you to do. And then on the other side, you have this, these children who are in orphanages all over the world who, um, while we know, and we talk about this all the time, that orphan care goes far beyond adoption. Adoption is a solution for, for many, but it's, it's not going to, honestly, it's not going to put a dent in the orphan crisis in the world without some really strong, holistic uh, efforts. Um, but there are children who are in the orphanages who should be adopted, some Maybe there, as you, as you look at these these children, there are some that they should never have been orphans. Some of them, if someone would have stepped in and helped their family or their mom or, or someone help them uh, break cycles of poverty, whatever it may be, there is a way to serve them in that way. But then there are those who should be, and their path is is to be adopted. And the reality is that every every child deserves a family. And so there are these children, though, that are caught in the system on this end who are waiting and waiting and waiting. Those that should be are waiting and waiting. And so the concept of both ends burning, obviously, are both sides are burning and are yearning for this family uh, to come together. And so they, they, they made this film called Stuck. And they talk about and celebrate the good parts of the journey, but then they also identify some of the struggles with the journey, some of the, uh, some of the holes that are in the process. They expose some of the uh, political red tape that might sh- uh, shouldn't be there. There's a lot of politics involved when you're dealing with two different countries. Um, a lot of information uh, to, first of all, educate us on what's going on there and some of the things we could do to help the process, not just complain or, or be angry all the time about the process. And so, But in order to do um, this thing right... The first thing you have to do is think about what is best for the child. Not what is necessarily just best for our end of it. Thinking what we want or how we want it to go down. And so you have to first evaluate what the current process is and what's going on and look at it honestly. And then you have to look at how it should be done which is there is a due process. There's a very important thing that happens during the adoption journey where children are are, um, worked with and researched and making sure that they weren't taken from their homes, that there's some really good due process that needs to happen. But you identify the differences between what is happening that is our current process and then identifying what is the due process that should be done. And then somewhere in there, we have our process, right? Where it's like, if I was in charge, this is how it would be. But it doesn't change what we think, doesn't change the reality of what should be. 
and what the truth is that's going to bring healing and restoration to the child. Because it's not about us. It's about this child. So there's this due process. And it's interesting as we have been going through the seven stations of the cross. We started about five weeks ago. And I think about this journey from Jesus' anointing in which he was anointed as the ultimate Passover lamb, the Messiah. To where he, he prayed in the garden to where in his humanity he begged God to find another way. But he surrendered to God, ultimately surrendered to God's will and saying, yet not my will but yours. So we see this journey and this process. We saw Jesus was condemned to death in which he was declared guilty for sins he had not committed. Then we see Jesus being denied by by Peter. And we see the story later. We know that Peter is reinstated to Christ in that journey of what happens there. Last week that he was judged by Pilate and handed over to be crucified. And this week in Mark 15... 16 through 20, Jesus is scourged and he's mocked. Next week we deal with the cross, his crucifixion, death and burial. And we celebrate the following week knowing the end of the story, right? We know that he rose from the dead and he conquered, he conquered death and sin. But there is a process that happens that God knows what he's doing. And there is a truth and there is a reality. And the beauty of it is God has done it because he has chosen what is best for you and me. Which ultimately leads to his glory. He chooses not what we want and how we want things to go. Because we choose death over life almost every time. But instead, because he is a just God, he chooses to restore us back to himself, to reinstate our relationship with him by going through this due process that leads to the forgiveness of sins, a new covenant for his people. And so that's what we want to look at today, specifically the story of Jesus already being condemned to death. And this is kind of the between time from when he was handed over until he was crucified. And I can't help but stop for a moment and think about this part of the story. There has to be some significant impact. There's some reasoning for this in our own life. So I want to explore that together a little bit. It's verse 16. After Pilate had handed them over, it says that the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him. Then they twisted together a crown of thorns. And they set it on him. And when they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff. And they spit on him, falling on their knees, paying homage homage, homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes back on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. And a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country. And they forced him uh, to carry uh, his cross. Interesting storyline. We know from earlier in the scripture that there is just this, these levels of rejection that Jesus is, is experiencing, that he's He's just being pushed down into isolation and being alone and being abandoned. 
and being rejected. And we see a handful of rejections that are, that are taking place in this story. The first one that, that we know of just a couple weeks ago in, in Mark 14 was that he was rejected by his friends. And his, here is God who is, who is um, truth made flesh. He's walking as a man. He is, God has translated himself into our, into our walk of life, putting on flesh, walking as Jesus. He's walked with these men, discipled them, gone through all these journeys, all these experiences they, where they've seen so many miracles. And he even warned Peter. He said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And, and Peter's like, no, bro. Never going to do that. And he goes, no, you will. So he's never going to do that. And, and, and then what does he do? He, he does. He disowns him. Now, we know the rest of the story, which is good. But he was at this moment rejected by his friends, specifically Peter. We see here now that he is rejected by his people, Israel. I mean, they, they had the opportunity to say, hey, no, let Jesus go. And instead they said, no. Give us Barabbas. Give us a criminal who's been convicted and we know. They'd rather have him out than this one who claims to be this Messiah that they've, that they've waited for. And then ultimately we know the scriptures that are forthcoming where he, he's on the cross and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was rejected by God, the Father. Such isolation, such complete rejection from every angle that he could possibly experience. Why do you think that is an important part of this journey? Let's do that. Why don't you share some, some thoughts? I think there are a handful of reasons why this needed to take place. So what, let's talk about that for a minute. What are some of the reasons that maybe come to your mind? Why, why couldn't he have just been, okay, you're guilty, put him on the cross. Why did this have to happen? Any thoughts on that? Okay, and we see his, our own rejection. We, we see him identifying with our humanity and what we would experience. There's nothing that God asks us to do or it's nothing we could go through that he did not encounter, right? Why else? Somebody say something off the wall that might make us go, oh, maybe. It's good. I mean, for other people who do that, right? That, what's that? Yeah, you know what's interesting, isn't it? I mean, if God is God, couldn't he just go, you know what? Just, we'll just, okay, everybody, you're just all forgiven. Come to heaven. I'm not going to do this. Hey, but why didn't he do that? Would it, because he shows it's an opportunity to illustrate his, his love, what else? What is it that those of you who know or maybe gone through those seasons of life where you know people who just, they reject God because of, of, of what he's, they think God has done versus just his reality. Like if God's like that, I'm not going to believe in him. You ever heard or felt that? It's like, well, wait a minute. If God's like that, he's still God. So you're not going to believe because you don't like, why don't we just say you don't like what he does? Or we don't understand it, but that doesn't mean he doesn't exist. You ever, so what are the things that God claims to be? One of them is love. What's the other main theme that God says that just permeates everything that he is? He's just. Who said that? So smart. 
he's just. He is justice, right? He is just. Um, so we know that in order for justice to be seen, there had to be a penalty for, for the sin, right? Is it justice for the guilty party just to go free? It's not justice. And it's interesting that the very thing God is and that he, it was justice is, is one of the greatest criticisms that people make of him at times. But it all makes sense if we're to really study scripture, if we're to really dig in and understand that his justice um, and his love is actually the motivation for the cross and everything that Christ went through. Why else? Why would he need to be rejected? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Or even just fallen humanity. Our condition, where we are, who we are. I I couldn't help but think about this as well, that Jesus was in complete isolation in that moment. He was just all alone, right? He had no one standing up for him. He was there was a moment when he was just even in the garden, he's like, No, you guys stay here, I'm going to pray. I gotta get what I want with God. It's it's significant. I think it's significant to note that the most important decisions we make are truly, they have implications all over the place, but they're right here. They're right here. Where we are isolated, we no longer get to just claim the faith of our parents. We don't get to just claim the faith of other people we know who try to live like Jesus. That ultimately it just comes back to the isolation. Well, who who are we? Who do we claim that he is? One-on-one. And I think we've got to settle that before we are able to um, even begin to live some of the things we're trying to live. It's like slapping Band-Aids on top of wounds that need surgery, you know. So I don't know. Uh, What we do know is there was this complete rejection. And he experienced this. The storyline, Jesus was rejected. And the storyline continues that he was mocked. A couple ways he was mocked. The first way that he was mocked was as a what? He was mocked as a king, right? You notice all of the ways they mocked him? They put on a purple robe, which is symbolic of kingship, right? What else did they do that was, that was uh, mocking him as a king? The crown of thorns. What else? Yeah, they bowed down to him. How mocking is your majesty, you know? They were doing that. What else? So one commentary say that even the spitting was kind of the mocking of instead of kissing, the king, they were, they were spitting. I wonder if even there's some symbolism to Simon carrying the crosses as a servant to him. Um, but there's a lot going on there that he is mocked uh, specifically as a king. So that's one. Number two, three different ways about uh, things to notice about his mocking. One, they mocked him as a king. The second one is that they mocked him out of disbelief, correct? So he claimed, it is as you say. Are you the king of the Jews? It is as you say, it is. So they mocked him because they did not believe he was the Messiah. They did not believe that he was the, uh, the, the king. And so that's why they mocked him out of disbelief. What do you think we can learn about the impact of disbelief from this scripture. 
What did they do because they did not believe? You notice, I mean, it's real. Maybe the answer you're thinking is it because it's, it's pretty obvious unless I'm asking a bad question. What did they do? What was their nature to do what? Just to mock him, to laugh at him, to, to attack him. It's interesting. We, I think one of the lessons we can learn from, from disbelief is the impact of disbelief in our own life. When we do not believe something, it's interesting how a couple things take place. One of them is the impact of disbelief is we become really cruel. I don't know what it is, but these guys had a faith. They had a religion. They, the Israelites believed in God. And they were supposedly the people of God who didn't believe this person. So instead of just going, no, I don't believe you, they went to the nth degree to annihilate him and to be cruel and to just go far beyond anything that they actually needed to to do. And I step back from that and I go, what are the things that I disbelieve, that I have, I don't believe, that other people may believe, and then how my sin nature jumps back in and I start attacking you ever do that? In the name of God, in the name of Jesus, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to slap you upside the face right now, you know? You have Facebook? You ever done that? Or Twitter or emails? All for God, not for us, but for him. I think it's really interesting how when we get backed in this corner of disbelief, how we respond. Many times we slip into this, this kind of cruelty. But I think another impact of disbelief itself, when we start slipping into that, is that it actually increases then our ability to see our own depravity. When we start fighting for something we think we know, and the truth is we cannot learn something that you think you already know. When we start slipping into that and we start defending what we believe or we think we believe, we start getting cruel. And it's a pretty good measure of truth, in my opinion. If you're fighting for God, he does, first of all, he doesn't really need you to defend him. God is big enough to take care of himself. He's done it for a long time, right? But if we find ourselves where we are, we are in our mind trying to defend truth, and instead of coming with grace, we find ourselves slipping in with cruelty, you might be wrong. It's a pretty good test to think, how is my nature going at this? Am I possibly 100% wrong in how I'm going? We slip into that. But we also slip into an increased uh, inability to see our own depravity. Jesus taught about that in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Who's talking about that first blessing are those who understand their spiritual poverty. There's a different kind, there are different kinds of poverty in the world. You have regular, you know, people who are poor and you have poverty and you have this thing called extreme poverty. And in extreme poverty, these people are not the people where you go, well, just we would stop being lazy. It's not, they, they can't just stop being lazy. It's bigger than that. They can't just, just pick themselves up by their bootstraps and pull up. They're in this place, no matter how hard they tried, they need someone else to come in and help them reach that bottom rung of the ladder. Economic strategists for other, in talking about this in other countries would say that things like debt forgiveness and things like that would help them 
whatever we could do to help them grow, grow out of extreme poverty. Jesus said we're extremely blessed when we understand our extreme spiritual poverty, that you and I can do nothing to earn our salvation. We've tried for years. The old covenant had something to do with that. But there's a new covenant. God is coming in and he's saying, here's how I choose to do this. There's a new covenant with my people. And it's about the blood of Christ in which all the penalty of sin, all humanity rests on him. And it becomes the most inclusive, beautiful love story the world has ever seen. But it's dangerous. Our disbelief, guys, is very dangerous. And I'm not just talking about, do you believe in God? Good. Do you believe in Jesus? Good. Okay, good. You're set. Hang on till, till heaven now. Survive this terrible world. No, it's bigger than that. Do you believe that, that you could trust Christ with your marriage? Do you believe that you could trust Christ with your family, with your future, with your job? Do you believe that you could trust him with wherever he is calling you that you're resisting? Do you believe that he actually loves you enough to want to make you a part of this journey of the kingdom being seen here on earth as it is in heaven? Do you believe that? Some of us don't believe that. We believe in Christ. We believe in God. But the way of Christ that I'm supposed to live? No, that's just for those guys. Do you, what do you believe? And here, here's the thing, the next, they mocked him as king, they mocked him out of disbelief, and they mocked him that we might believe. One prophecy. It's amazing all, that was, all the prophecy that was fulfilled. And it wasn't like Jesus had a checklist. He was like, okay, before I die, I need to do these. I mean, it's like the statistics have been done for one man. It's just, it can't be done. Especially since all these things were done to him. All this prophecy was fulfilled. Test it. Every time I wonder, God, man... That Bible, sometimes it just it feels a little goofy. When I reject it and go, okay, that's just goofy. I don't want to go there. It always seems goofy. When I hear it and I press into it and I read and I study and I cross-reference and I read other, then it always proves true. It always begins to make sense the more we press into it. They mocked it that we might believe this prophecy is being fulfilled. But also, here's something Jesus did all the time. He always brings us to a crossroads. He always brings us to this thing where we've got to choose. Am I going to choose him or am I going to choose me? And somehow our religion and the way we do church, sometimes it just slips into, we create a whole lot of gray area, right? And it's really weird because the Bible is so directly opposed to gray area in riding the fence. Jesus is very specific that it's like, that's not where I am. He says, you either, you either choose this path or, or you choose your path. And it's so interesting to me, this part of the story, in my mind, forces me to choose a path. Either we hear the story of them being so cruel to him out of their disbelief, and we go, no, that is wrong. We do not like that. I do not want that. Or we're like the religious that are doing the flogging. There's no in between. You can't just sit back and look at that and go, yeah, I can understand that, I guess. Jesus is constantly bringing people to that crossroads, whether it's, again, I, that story that just goes through my head constantly is when he had this crowd of thousands of people following him and he turned around and he said, here's what you guys need to do. You're gonna have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, right? And everybody left except for the 12. 
constant crossroads. Are you going to choose my way or are you going to choose your way? That we might, um, that we might believe. Here's an evaluation point. What do you believe? What do you believe? And I, I would go so far to argue that what we live is what we believe. A good friend of mine always says that we, we fail to live the gospel because we don't believe the gospel. If we did, we'd live it. And I'm not, again, I'm not just talking about do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but we're talking about uh, this good news of the kingdom, a way of life that brings redemption to people and restores brokenness in our world and that we get to play a role in this. And I think a very important part of the story is that these soldiers, I don't think it was a willful disobedience. I don't think they saw Jesus and thought, oh yeah, I really think that's the son of God, but I'm going to kill him anyways. I think it was just out of, it was out of ignorance and even trying to do right, maybe. Trying to defend all that they knew, all of this stuff was going on. It was, it was, not necessarily a willful disobedience in that moment. However, it seemed a little cruel. That seems a little willful. But there are moments that are willful and then there are moments of just negligence. What don't we believe about how we are to live? If we were to look at our lives and say, I obviously don't believe that or I, would, I could trust God with my career because I would, do, I would never do that. Or I would do something. To, whatever. What is the thing... And the question is, is it a willful disobedience or for us? or a, Not even disobedience. Is it a willful disbelief? Meaning I choose not to believe he cares about that just because I'm just choosing myself. Let's not fool ourselves. We're choosing ourselves. Or is it negligence? And I would argue most often it starts with just a negligence, a willing to research it and say, Jesus, if this is real, how should this look in my life? How does this impact the way I live? How should this reality impact um, where I invest my time and my resources and my efforts and my mental energy? And how should this reflect in my life? And the reality is it, disbelief, no matter if it's willful or it is just negligent disbelief, it has the same impact unless we find truth. I think this is a, this is a challenge in, in my mind. It's part of a challenge where we get to sit back and look at these guys who were crucifying the nation of Israel, calling out for the crucifixion of Christ. And, and not just that, but they were flogging him and all of these things. As we look at that, it's a call to go, no, this is the son of God. Do we believe that or not? And that there were some very religious people who were doing the very wrong thing because they were not thinking, they were thinking, how do I want this to go? Not how might God really want this to go? What is the due process that must, must take place? And so we sit here in this moment, this brutalness happening. Next week, we move into the cross, the death, the burial. And then the following week, Easter, the resurrection, the good news. Um, I want to invite you to be a part of that over the next couple of weeks as we really dig through and think through the implications uh, of the cross. Let's pray. God, we know that our sin impacts and we're thankful that 
And we also know that we're born into sin because of Adam. And it's not just our own individual sin that, that, um, that, that curses us. And it's not just our behavior and not these things, God, but it's, it's our submission to you and to Christ. I pray, God, that you would shine a light into our own minds and our hearts this morning to think about um, where, we, where we stand, where our disbelief is. God, help us see how far our faith goes and our belief goes. Help us to see the implications of that in our lives. God, help us to be honest with you where it's just willful disbelief or we just choose not to because of our fear or because whatever may be and help us to understand where we're just being negligent where we're just we're not pursuing truth enough and god would you give us the desire to pursue truth in ways that we've never pursued before may we understand the impact it has on personally in our families and our lives and our career but also then collectively as the church the bride of christ that we might rise and be a church that is a believing church believing in your goodness and your grace, and your mercy, just as much as your truth and your justice. In Jesus' name, amen.